Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it is strange to think that you could create a plan to shape the relationship between two entities in consultation with one but not the other, and then not just declare it yourself a win-win, but also say to the unconsulted party, you better take it or else. Yet that's what's unfolding with Donald Trump's plan for Israel-Palestine, which some corporate media are describing as a peace plan, even as a chorus of voices, including Israeli human rights group B'Tselem, say the plan would put Palestinians in a permanent state of apartheid. We'll talk about Trump or Jared Kushner's proposal for Israel-Palestine with Omar Badar. Deputy Director of the Arab American Institute. Also on the show, Edward Snowden wrote recently, the most essential journalism of every era is precisely that which a government attempts to silence. He ought to know. Snowden was talking about Brazilian prosecutors charging journalist Glenn Greenwald with cyber crime, stemming from explosive revelations he reported about corruption in the process that sent former president and presidential candidate Lula da Silva to prison, clearing the path for neo-fascist Jair Bolsonaro to take the presidency. What is cybercrime, and what should we know about its use against this journalist and potentially against any journalist? We'll talk about that with Rainey Reitman, Chief Program Officer for the Electronic Frontier Foundation and co-founder of the Freedom of the Press Foundation. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The lead in the New York Times January 28th report was, quote, President Trump on Tuesday unveiled his long-awaited Middle East peace plan with a flourish, releasing a proposal that would give Israel most of what it has sought over decades of conflict while offering the Palestinians the possibility of a state with limited sovereignty. Close quote. There are a number of problems in that sentence, one of them being the paper's uncritical use of the phrase peace plan. But it's true to U.S. corporate media form in presenting the Israel-Palestine conflict as two comparably situated parties fighting one another and in legitimizing the U.S. role as broker. Statements like, still, the plan does far more for Israel than it does for the Palestinians, besides understating things by orders of magnitude, do nothing to reflect the fundamental asymmetry of power. The Washington Post threw in the trope of emotion-driven brown people with the headline, Israel rushes to capitalize on peace plan as Palestinians express anger. It's not wrong that Palestinians, along with advocates of human rights and international law, are angry at the proposal, but they have reasons as well as feelings. Here to help us see what's going on is Omar Badar, Deputy Director of the Arab American Institute. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Omar Badar. Thank you very much for having me. Well, let's get right to it. What is most important to know about this quote-unquote deal of the century? 
I think the most important thing to know is that it is not a peace deal at all. I mean, it's not only a misnomer to call it a peace deal. It really is flat out Orwellian because the proposal does not lead to peace for sure. And it's not going to be a deal because the Palestinians will never sign it. It is effectively a proposal to confine Palestinians to tiny areas of land that are completely under the control of the Israeli military. So you basically do not have anything offered to the Palestinians that comes even close to the kind of freedom and independence that Israelis enjoy. And the only people who would support a a proposal like this are people who genuinely see Palestinians as an inferior people who are not deserving of the same rights and freedoms that the rest of us are entitled to. To basically put it in other terms, I think this is an apartheid proposal, and it's going to be a non-starter for obvious reasons. And I think the fact that everybody goes on calling it a peace deal is normalizing to some extent something that is really grotesque and monstrous. Well, apparently the plan says that issues of territory were worked out in the spirit of U.N. Security Council Resolution 242. What should we know about the land issues here? Resolution 242 basically says that Israel is obligated to withdraw fully from the occupied Palestinian territory. That is all the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. Uh, Keep in mind that this only makes up 22% of the entire land. I mean, basically Israel under Resolution 242 gets to keep 78% of the land. And the problem is that under this proposal, this gigantic Palestinian compromise, basically the, the 1967 borders, which is what your Resolution 242 is based on, gives the Palestinians very little land, and they accepted that as a division. And the Trump administration, and frankly, even previous American administrations, start with that division of land as the starting point rather than the end point, which is part of the problem, is that there's always this talk about whether Palestinians are compromising enough and, and all of that. But simply Israel abiding by international law gives Palestinians only 22% of the land, and that's a massive Palestinian compromise that people should be embracing. So the idea that then carving that 22% into much smaller areas and giving Israel complete, you know, in the case of the West Bank, it's supposed to be bordering Jordan on one side. Under the Trump proposal, the entire Jordan Valley, the eastern part of the West Bank, ends up falling under Israeli control. So Palestinians end up being surrounded by Israel from the north, south, east, and west. By no stretch of the imagination can this be described as a state. And it is clearly a pretty significant deviation from U.N. Resolution 242 and international law, as made clear by the U.N., which basically came out against this deal and said that it's not based on international law. Well, I was disturbed by the New York Times saying the plan offers Palestinians a state with limited sovereignty. Besides the noblesse oblige in that offers, what would it even, what does it even mean to say a state with limited sovereignty? I mean, just to underscore the Palestinians would not control their borders, their air, their water. It's the lands is, are not contiguous. I'm just not sure why the word state is in that sentence at all. Yeah, it's a really infantilizing and somewhat racist conception of Palestinians that if you give them a plot of land to put a flag on and call it a state, that therefore it's a state. It's, you know, it's, there was a statement made by a spokesperson for Benjamin Netanyahu back in the 90s, David Bar Ilan who basically said that Netanyahu's idea has always been to give Palestinians very tiny pieces of land that are completely encircled by Israel. And then he said they can call it the state if they want, or they can call it fried chicken. I don't care. Those were his words. And that effectively is what current American policy is under this administration. Everybody's going along with this idea of this part of land being a make-believe state and treating it like it's real. 
And it really is journalistic negligence to be living in an environment where instead of calling these things out, people go along with a terminology that is handed out by this administration. I really think that Orwell is rolling in his grave looking at all of this. Well, a state it would not be, but there are things that it sounds like, and those things are Bantustans, aren't they? I mean, the South Africa analogy is not inappropriate. No, it is more apt than ever. Frankly, it has been a very systematic move in that direction. The reality on the ground is already apartheid. It is a separate system of uh, laws and rights that are handed out to Israelis and to Palestinians. In the occupied territories, Israeli settlers who are there illegally on Palestinian land get to move freely, get to use roads that Palestinians don't get to use. They're served under a completely different judicial system, under the full Israeli system, whereas Palestinians serve under Israeli military jurisdiction, where there are all kinds of draconian punitive measures against minor crimes. And the point was this whole occupation, the apartheid system that exists under occupation, was supposed to be temporary. And we're supposed to be working in a direction away from that. That has always been the official justification, is that the occupation exists for military necessity. And we just need to work out the details for peace to come about and end it. And now sort of this entire sham of the peace process has been exposed that it has been a systematic effort by Israel using the rhetoric of a peace process to make this apartheid more permanent, to create facts on the ground that make it unchangeable. We are looking at a situation where the two-state solution may no longer be possible, and it may be time for a struggle for equal rights between Palestinians and Israelis in the entire land from the river to the sea. Well, the New York Times also said that this plan would not require Israel, quote, to uproot any of the settlements in the West Bank that have provoked Palestinian outrage and alienated much of the world, close quote, and that Netanyahu's declaration that he's pushing for unilateral annexation of the Jordan River Valley and all Jewish settlements in the West Bank, that's what the Washington Post calls the rush to capitalize on the deal, that that is, <laughs> quote, a move that is sure to further inflame the Palestinians, close quote. International law doesn't seem to have much of a role. These things were just told just make Palestinians mad. Yep. As if Palestinian emotions are the only objection to any of this happening, as opposed to the fact that land theft, <laughs> I mean, it's just the basics of international law. The primary reason it exists is to prevent aggression and land theft and countries invading other countries and taking them over. And the fact that this is unfolding and the only concern, as you mentioned, is what Palestinians feel about it, it really is preposterous. We have the entire international order at stake in this case. If we allow, if we create a norm by which countries can just take over other countries and to the objections of American administration, successive ones, you know, it goes back to Obama and Bush and Clinton. They were all critical of Israeli policy of expanding settlements. They all kept asking Israel to stop. The message is, well, if you just ignore us and build anyway, then we're just going to have to accept the reality. Then this is really encouragement for everybody around the world that wants to take over any piece of territory that might makes right and just go ahead and do your thing, and eventually we'll just have to accept the reality that you created. This is really fundamentally breaking down the entire international order and the basis that we have for international law and the way that we want to organize ourselves as a human civilization on this planet. 
Well, people are often surprised that Israeli media can be more critical of Israel than U.S. media. James North at Mondo Weiss cites a piece from Haaretz that says, the only part of the Trump plan that will assuredly be implemented is the annexation bit. All other parts of the plan will be contingent on Palestinian acceptance of a plan that, as previously written in Haaretz, was written with the clear intention of getting the Palestinians to reject it. Close quote. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? I think that nothing positive could happen under the Trump administration. But we are beginning to see cracks in the way American media coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is really changing. It's obviously still very bad, but it's also substantially better than it used to be 10 and 15 and 20 years ago. So we are seeing some progress. Some people who are running for the Democratic nomination for president, including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, talking about potentially applying conditions on military aid to Israel to get Israel to change its behavior, which is precisely what has been needed and what has been missing, is that you've had successive administrations object to Israeli policy, but never really willing to back that rhetoric, those positions with action. At the end of the day, U.S. military aid to Israel continued rising. Diplomatic support of the United Nations just went on basically unstopped. And without accountability, we really can't get anywhere. And the fact that we have now presidential candidates on the Democratic side, we'll find out whether it's just rhetoric for the election or whether it's actually going to be action. But the fact that we have people talking about accountability for Israel and no longer writing a blank check of military aid to Israel as a means of pushing them to behave within the bounds of international law and respect Palestinian human rights is potentially a promising sign. So I think between that the potential of a change in administration, as well as the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign on a grassroots level. Hopefully we can see some pressure beginning to mount on Israel to actually change its apartheid policies towards Palestinians. Well, is there anything for U.S. citizens to do with regard to this particular plan? I think American citizens should be running to their members of Congress, trying to make sure that our government raises its voice, our representatives raise their voice, and become vocal in opposition to this deal. We should not allow any level of normalization of this proposal. And I think the more members of Congress hear from from Americans about the fact that we object to this preposterous and one-sided effort by the U.S. to impose apartheid on the Palestinians, and the more presidential candidates are challenged about their positions on this issue, I think the better. It's absolutely critical for us not to slide down a road where this kind of policy becomes gradually normalized. So I really think it's important for people to actually reach out to their representatives, to write letters to the editor and op-eds in their local newspapers, making sure that this does not reflect our values and it's not what we stand for. We've been speaking with Omar Badar, Deputy Director of the Arab American Institute. You can find their work online at aaiusa.org. Omar Badar, thank you for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you very much for having me. The pathway to Brazil's presidency was cleared for neo-fascist Jair Bolsonaro by the imprisonment of former president and popular candidate Lula da Silva on charges of corruption that many saw from the start as spurious and politically motivated. It is then a very big deal that information given to journalist Glenn Greenwald revealed collusion between the prosecutors and the judge in the case. Since Greenwald's revelation, 
revelations, Lula has been released from prison. And Greenwald has been harassed and threatened, including by Bolsonaro himself. But his right to report has been upheld. Now, though, public prosecutors have filed a criminal complaint charging Greenwald with something called cybercrime. Here to help us see what this case might mean for journalists who challenge the powerful and for us, the public that rely on them, is Rainey Reitman, Chief Program Officer for Electronic Frontier Foundation and co-founder of the Freedom of the Press Foundation. She joins us by phone from San Francisco. Welcome to Counterspin, Rainey Reitman. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, I know we're still learning, but free press advocates like yourself have seen enough to sound alarms about Glenn Greenwald's case in itself and for its implications for all journalists. What is meant by cyber crime here? Is it just a different dressing for trying to prosecute reporting? That's a really good question. So we've seen many different governments around the world push back against journalists who expose corruption in their areas. And so it's not unusual to see prosecutions or to see harassment or public attacks on investigative journalists, especially ones that are very effective at exposing government corruption the way Greenwald certainly has been. What's really interesting about this case is that they're using this tool of cybercrime laws, which are laws that are meant to criminalize malicious hacking. So you could think of someone who breaks into a system to steal data for malicious intent in order to commit crimes or for any number of other reasons. And these laws are designed to go after malicious hackers, and we've seen them be enacted around the world And they often carry pretty stiff penalties. And so it's really worrisome that this is an instance where we're seeing an investigative journalist basically being charged as if he were a malicious hacker. Well, they're saying that Greenwald was engaged in a criminal conspiracy to hack telephones, that he didn't just accept material from his source. Now, Greenwald, as listeners will know, a founder of The Intercept and The Intercept Brazil, is a lawyer, and he's been around the block. And he's been very clear that his source that he relied on for this reporting had all the materials when he first came to him. And in fact, Brazilian law protects that reporter-source relationship, as the Supreme Court in the country even said, you know. So, It sounds as though, you know, he certainly denies the idea that he was encouraging his source to hack into phones, which sounds like that would have to be proven to meet the level of cybercrime. That's right. I think one thing that's really important to remember here is that investigative journalists, they communicate with sources quite a bit, and that's very normal. It is typical for an investigative journalist to verify the information they're getting and find out what's going to be in this data, why is it important, and have a bit of a back and forth. So the fact that he was communicating with this anonymous source isn't in any way problematic. And there's nothing that we've seen in any of the chat logs that our lawyers 
we have a, a wonderful attorney based in Brazil who did an analysis of the criminal complaint and the original Portuguese complaint. And there's nothing that we saw that was in any way indicating that Greenwald was urging the source to engage in any illegal activity, rather that this was more about confirming that he had received the documents that he needed in order to do the reporting on it and, and verifying some of that. I think that there's some questions about, you know, what's going to play out here, right? I mean, one of the things at the crux of this case is that the original leaks were about judicial misconduct. And so it's worrisome to see an investigative reporter being brought through the same court systems <laughs> that he exposed as having misconduct in them. Or as the New York Times says, raised questions and cast doubt, you know, which I thought was a bit gentle. Well, James Risen had an op-ed in the New York Times saying that Greenwald's case and that of Julian Assange also charged with aiding his source, Chelsea Manning, to access a military database, that they're based in part on a new prosecutorial concept, that journalism can be proven to be a crime through a focus on interactions between reporters and their sources. He called it a detour around the First Amendment. And what I thought was also interesting was, Risen says governments like Bolsonaro's and Donald Trump's quote, seem to have decided to experiment with such draconian anti-press tactics by trying them out first on aggressive and disagreeable figures, close quote. And here to me is where the public can come in. It's, it's worrisome if we start thinking, well, I don't really like Julian Assange, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, Greenwald has an axe to grind. We, we have to keep a clear eye on the principles here. I think that's completely right. I mean, if we get down to it, these are relatively new tactics being employed to silence journalists who are confronting existing power structures. And a free society, when it's functioning well, can tolerate investigative journalists, even those who are, as Risen says, disagreeable. And in fact, I think a free society thrives when it gets articles about corruption and misconduct. And there's a sense that if something is wrong, uh, there's a way for there to be sort of a safety valve. Sources can go to the media, present true facts, and the public will find out. The idea that there's this big backlash using this relatively untested tool to silence journalists is pretty concerning. And it's something that I think we're all waiting to see how it plays out. Because, of course, Julian Assange, that case is not over yet. This case against Greenwald is not over yet. And so it will really be such a big deal if we see that laws designed for malicious hacking can basically be used to shutter journalists. Part of what's happened is a scramble around if people are not willing to come to the defense of an Assange or an Ed Snowden or a Glenn Greenwald, then we think, oh, because they're not really real reporters or they're not really real journalists. And there's a kind of essentialism that we seek for. But as you're saying, this is information that the public has a right to know. And journalists have won prizes for it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'd like to see media themselves coming out stronger in defense of journalism and and particular journalists, particularly when they're under fire like this. And there's no question that Glenn Greenwald is the epitome of a journalist. I mean, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He has been at this for a very long time and is himself a constitutional lawyer. So for me, the Greenwald case is a 
especially egregious because there should be absolutely no question. And in fact, the Brazilian Supreme Court prior to this had even upheld and preemptively stated that his relationship with the source was protected under Brazilian constitutional law. I understand that there are people who want to distance themselves from Julian Assange, who aren't happy with Edward Snowden. And the thing I keep coming back to, this is more than about the people involved. It's about the principles, and it's about what kind of society we want to live in. And journalism has become digital, right? We are living in a society that most of us are getting our news online or through various online media. And so we need to ensure that as the news evolves, our thinking about what is protected by the First Amendment and by free speech laws internationally also evolves. Let me just ask you finally, I know that EFF did a report a few years back. Let me just bring you back to cybercrime for a second. What did you have to say about how cybercrime laws could be shaped to comport with human rights so that maybe they couldn't be this, this tool in prosecutors' hands? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. So we put out, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation put out a detailed report where we compared cybercrime laws across the Americas, throughout North and South America, and how they were being used. At the time, we were particularly interested in cases where security researchers, you know, academics and others who are engaged in security research to help harden our systems and make the public more secure, were facing prosecution or legal jeopardy as a result of cybercrime laws. And we found that in our analysis, many of the laws across the Americas around computer intrusion are extremely hazy and vague, using vague terms that don't adequately or clearly describe the activities they're trying to punish, and also could carry pretty hefty penalties. And we see that even in the United States, where the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has very steep penalties and can be applied with a lot of prosecutorial discretion. So given that, we made a number of recommendations, a couple of them just to hone in on it, were around ensuring that malicious intent was baked in so that it would be clear that this law is designed to to go after not those who are acting in the public interest to uncover security vulnerabilities, but rather actually people who are trying to illegally get data or do other malicious things through computer intrusion. And we also talked about ensuring that the penalties were basically similar to the crimes that were being committed. One of the concerns is that if somebody is engaged in an act that is illegal, if they're doing it with a computer, that doesn't mean that they should get 10 times as much time in prison as if they had done it not using a computer. And we need to make sure that just adding through a computer doesn't wildly change the penalties associated with the crime. I will say that the report we did was analyzing the use of these cybercrime laws, especially around security researchers. And again, now that we can see that these laws can be turned against journalists, that is a really worrisome trend and, uh, and especially dangerous considering how vague these laws are and what powerful penalties they are often associated with. We've been speaking with Rainey Reitman of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can find their work online at EFF.org. Rainey Reitman, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. And 
that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.